HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit rt11.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Yeah, that's right. It's What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. We got a great show lined up today. Uh, we're going to be talking about all of the press and the brouhaha around the decision by Chipotle uh, Mexican Grill to uh, take carnitas out of their restaurants, uh, about 600 locations. So today to discuss this issue with me um, is Chris Arnold. Uh, Chris is the uh, communications director at Chipotle. He oversees a variety of external communications, including their media relations, uh, their government relations and public affairs, as well as philanthropic programs for the national burrito restaurant chain. He's an architect of the company's brand and external messaging and a counselor to the company executive team. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for coming back on the show. And with Chris will be uh, another favorite of mine, Jeff Trapezian. Jeff is the Chief Marketing Officer and Executive Vice President of Sales for Nyman Ranch. Jeff has uh, 28, actually Trip, sorry, has 28 years of consumer marketing and brand management experience um, in the uh, CPG and natural foods industry. So welcome to both of you. Um, let's get off uh, on the right foot. Let's start with Chris, actually, here. Um, first of all, so Carnitas came off the menu in some 600 restaurants. What happened? Um, thanks for having me again, Katie. Um, oh, my pleasure, Chris. I love having you on the show. <laughs> uh, so, so through our routine auditing, we, we found that, that a pork supplier of ours uh, had some inconsistencies with our, our protocol for uh, pigs. Uh, mm-hmm. Under our protocols, uh, pigs need to be raised either with access to the outdoors or in deeply bedded barns and, and without the use of 
antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And uh, through this audit, we, we found some inconsistencies with that, uh, primarily in the areas of housing. And, and so we made the decision to suspend the supplier. Uh, and, and by doing that, uh, we created a shortfall in uh, our pork supply. And, and that left us with uh, the immediate decision uh, of whether we should uh, substitute the pork that we had gotten from this supplier with conventionally raised pork, or uh, if we should uh, uh, run short of carnitas. And and we chose uh, the latter quite simply because uh, where where the raising of pigs is concerned, um, the the animal welfare differences between our protocols and conventional protocols are just so stark um, that it wasn't a, a compromise that uh, that we thought we could make. So unlike being able to buy Australian grass-fed beef, for example, as you did last summer, very, uh, you know, very um, publicly, um, in this case, you've decided to suspend. And that must be a pretty damn big supplier if it's 600 restaurants worth of product there. So this is clearly not something arrived at lightly. Um, let me ask you this. You went very, very public with this message, which I thought was interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us about that. I mean, was that like basically um, a smart PR move, which it certainly stayed in the public eye over the last week, uh, still being twittered, twittered about, and I'm still seeing, um, you know, follow-up pieces. And I've certainly seen some interesting conspiracy theories. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think the conspiracy theories might be the most interesting. Oh, my favorite you know, was I, the Muslim one. I, I don't one. know that I would call it a, you know, necessarily a, a, you know, any kind of a smart PR move necessarily so much as I would call it a necessary move. Um, when we've had even short-term uh, disruptions in our supply will post uh, uh, point of purchase notices in our restaurant saying yeah. that, you know, for example, the steak uh, in this restaurant is, uh, you know, not our normal uh, responsibly raised steak, you know, that sort of thing. Um, simply because we believe it's it's the right thing to do to tell people when they're not getting what they think they're getting. Um, in this case, it had a lot more legs by virtue of uh, A, being the first time we've ever actually stopped serving something because right. we couldn't get enough of it, and, and B, because it's so many restaurants. I mean, if this was uh, a market's worth of restaurants, even even a kind of big market for us, uh, Denver or Washington, D.C. or something, um, I, I don't think you would have seen the same sort of ripple effect. But you're talking about a third uh, of our restaurants across yeah. the country, and, and that's a pretty sizable amount. And so, so the, the, the nature of this shortfall and the nature of the outage is so widespread, and, and it's a really unprecedented action. And I think that's what uh, really drove the attention. In, in terms of our message, it was really uh, just in, in kind of keeping with our belief in, in being transparent and, and telling people people that uh, what you're getting isn't uh, what you usually get, or in this case, uh, here's why you're not getting. Um, did you anticipate as much media interest in this as, as you have gotten? Um, not necessarily. I mean, we, we, we certainly understood that it would be uh, a story and, and a significant story, um, but the 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 extent to which it's been covered has been um, uh, uh, pretty extraordinary. Um, and, and, of course, uh, <laughs> some of the, uh, the conspiracy theories have been uh, pretty extraordinary. I've seen things uh, suggesting that we're 
uh, we're bowing to the uh, dietary restrictions of Muslims and Jews, which is yeah, that's my uh, favorite. Certainly not true, <laughs> and I've seen uh, speculation that this is some sort of uh, engineered PR stunt, which is completely ridiculous. I mean, we would much rather have pork in all of our restaurants than have a conversation uh, about why we don't. So right. um, it's it's been a big story, and, and I think what's been most eye-opening from our end is uh, the degree to which uh, customers are supporting the decision. It really seems like the overwhelming majority of people uh, appreciate our standing on principle and, and not uh, making uh, a compromise on that. Yeah, I think it's I, you know I'm 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 frankly blown away. I'm I'm speechless, which hardly ever happens to me. But it, um, you know, just the I, I think you guys might be. Um, first of all, I think this is unprecedented in the food industry. Um, I can't think of another single example uh, that is even close to this. And secondly, um, I, just the level of transparency again is something that just doesn't happen, as especially doesn't happen in the food industry. So, um, you know, kudos to you guys for uh, breaking that ground. Um, let's bring. Jeff Trapezian and Trip. Um, what what happens when uh, you know somebody like Nyman Ranch? You guys have um, how many farms now? Six hundred and something. Over over seven hundred now, Katie. Over seven hundred. Well, welcome, by the way. Thank you for uh, for joining us today. It's always a pleasure. Um, it is. Uh, tell us how you guys. I mean, you are working hand in it because you're a big supplier, obviously, for Chipotle already. Um, how are you guys? Um, you know, what happens when you have to scale up production uh, in a short term level like this? I mean, it doesn't. Pigs don't, you know, hatch fully grown. So, <laughs> right. You know what well, happens. Yeah, it, it, it takes nine to twelve months to increase the the number or the amount of livestock. Right. And so it's really not a short term uh, issue. Mm-hmm. Um, short term, we have um, certain product that we we uh, put in reserve, if you will, uh, or in, in a freezer that we can utilize. Unfortunately, for situations like this, um, and we're obviously working with Chipotle to to uh, review formulation to see if there is other cuts of pork that can be used in their product that might allow them to have uh, more immediate supply. Right. So right. long, long so they term, buy it's more pieces. family farmers and more family farmers raising more hogs. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to bring up something uh, that I want both of you to comment on, which uh, was kind of in a in a um, an email stream that um, my director Aaron Fairbanks uh, forwarded to me, and um, the gist of uh, several of these. Um, you know, farmers who were responding to this to this very controversy uh, or this very, um, you know, uh, process that you guys are going through. Um, you know, there's there's a lot. And, I, and I've heard this is not the first time I've heard this either. But the standards of Chipotle um, are, you know, extremely high and really hard to accommodate, um, which is not to say that that's not a good thing. I'm just saying that for but I, I think what gets lost uh, in between sort of the people who do make the grade for a company like Chipotle um, and the people who don't is is sort of those medium ground farmers, those, you know, middle sized farms that um, basically have to play the game with the big boys because they have not, for whatever reason, um, been able to meet the requirements of something like a Chipotle. And there's a real um, sense that there's a, a something of a demonization, uh, if you will, between the farmers who do make the grade and those that are just simply doing their jobs the way they know how to do it and which happens to comply with you know, conventional farming methods. And I, I wondered if you could both sort of comment on that, because I think that that's a perception that is um, not necessarily uh, good for either of your businesses. Um, so maybe you want to, which one of you wants sure. to start out with Chris, that? Chris, you want to go first? 
Uh, sure. You know, we, we really have always tried to make it uh, a point not to demonize other farming practices. Uh, I, I certainly acknowledge that some of our, our marketing uh, over the years has upset uh, conventional farmers. That's never been our intention. Our intention has always been simply to point out that there are choices. And, mm-hmm. and I think there are a lot of consumers who don't know that there are differences in the way uh, animals are raised and vegetables are grown. And, uh, and, in, and in working to educate people about those choices, our, our aim is, is simply to say, um, you know, not all things are uh, created the same and, and people should be making uh, informed decisions about what they eat. And if those informed decisions uh, lead them to uh, buying meat from folks like Diamond Ranch or eating at restaurants like Chipotle or going to them uh, more often, that's fine. But if they don't share uh, our worldview on that, well, that's fine too. But we just think the choices should be uh, made from a a position of information. But it takes a lot of of infrastructure change, um, I suspect. And and Tripp, you can certainly correct me on that. Um, But just, you know, like there is, you know, for people who grew up in the industry, maybe took over a family farm or something like that and have been farming the way uh, conventionally raised agriculture has been farmed in the last 40, 50 years. Um, these are, you know, the Chipotle model and, and models like it are significantly enough different uh, that it's financially often quite difficult to um, make that change over. So, Tripp, why don't you pick it up from that and, and tell sure. us what it takes? Yeah, first, I agree with Chris. I mean, we're, we're, the... The industry is there really to provide choices. I mean, Nyman is a choice. Mm-hmm. There's other companies out there and, and lots of different ways people can raise animals and, and provide food. Um, but, gosh, if you are a that, that farmer in the middle and, um, and you're somewhere between uh, very large and quite small, and, and they've invested in infrastructure, they've invested right. buildings and so on, it's difficult for them to make a transition. Um, and, and so that's what we do. I mean, we work with those kinds of farmers where we try to help them understand how they can make that transition. Right. And we, I mean, heck, we, we co-sign loans at the bank, um, their local you know, agriculture bank, to help them transition from what they're doing today to something that, in all candor, is a much brighter future for them. Right. Um, if they're small and they're like-minded, uh, right. if they believe that this is the the choice they'd like to make for their family and their farm, uh, gosh knows we have more than enough supp- uh, demand, and we could use their supply of, of pork. Right. And so there's lots of ways you can help a farm move from conventional uh, to something uh, like a pasture-raised program. Uh, or something in between. Uh-huh. But it's very difficult for them to do it on their own because they've already have uh, invested quite significantly in their other operation. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so to go back to the, the supply and demand issue of production, I mean, you're saying that um, your demand at this point is far outstripping your supply. Um, oh, absolutely. And uh, which is a, a, an enviable position to be in, my friend. Uh, should I be investing in Nyman stock now? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's a great position for Nyman and other companies like ours. Yeah. But what's really wonderful is it's a it's almost an unprecedented position for a farmer that can make a choice. So yeah. if you're a, 
uh, uh, recent, you know, next generation or recent college graduate, and you want to get into farming, and you're at that moment of which way should I go? Yeah. This now represents a, a very stable um, way to make a living farming, which over years that has been a challenge for conventional farmers. Well, let's. Uh, so this is this yeah. is a great opportunity for people to make that decision today. I, I want to just um, reference a couple of pr- guests that I've had on in the last year. One of them being uh, Chris Leonard, who wrote the wonderful book uh, "The Meat Racket," um, which mm-hmm. described contract farming in the poultry industry. I suspect it's not so different in the hog industry. And um, and of course, uh, one of the big issues is is those contracts. And uh, you know, when you're when you buy into a contract, and and many farmers do buy into those contracts because they don't recognize or they're unaware of or they simply aren't interested in um, alternatives and, and signing up with something like Nyman. And, and let's face it, you guys are pretty new to the – I mean, you're not new, but you're sort of – the scale upon which you're dealing is pretty new, wouldn't you say? Right. I mean, sure. um, you know, those those people, they get locked into a protocol. They can't really change it. It's almost like a sense of um, – what is the word I'm looking for? Endangered uh, servitude yeah, almost, endangered right? Servant. Yeah. So. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, what, 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 I'll give you an example of what we do. We provide a farmer, basically, think of it as an insurance policy. We, uh-huh. we um, let them do what they would like. It's their farm or their ranch. Um, we have the rules or the protocols that say if, if they do it our way, um, we will make sure they never lose any money. Um, we'll Most of our, our agreements are handshake, not a written contract. We're just... Not that kind of company, but for those uh-huh. that want one, we're happy to write them a contract. Um, but the contract is really, we give them the choice. How would they like to be paid? Uh-huh. Would, and what's their tolerance for risk? And instead of us dictating those things, we let them choose um, because they're, they own the farm, it's theirs. Right. And, and that gives them a great sense of empowerment and control over what they're doing, which is typically uh, not the way the, the larger side of agriculture works. Yeah, absolutely. You're you you are you're buying feed from the you know you're getting your feed from the company. Your housing is built upon their standards, et cetera, et cetera. All of this I learned from uh, Chris Leonard's excellent book, right? And then also from um, uh, Ted Genoway's book, The Chain, which is also terrific. He was also, um, mm-hmm. so um, Chris. Let's go back to you for a second. So, how does Chipotle work with um, their partners? Like, for instance, the offending company, which shall not be named. I don't know it, and I'm not asking you to tell us who it is. Um, like, what does this represent for them? I mean, have you uh, you suspended their contract? Uh, obviously, that's got to have a huge impact on their sales. Are they going to go directly into the commodity market for this with the surplus, uh, or is there some other mechanism? by which they can, uh, you know, how will they insinuate themselves back into your graces? <laughs> yeah, well, well, I, you know, I, I don't know for sure how they'll they'll uh, kind of manage the inventory on, on their end. Right. Uh, I do think it's important to note that we've positioned this as a suspension uh, rather than a termination, and we have terminated That's suppliers right. uh, before. And, and it's our hope that uh, the issues that that we saw in our operations can be addressed to our satisfaction, and and if that happens, we would certainly consider uh, having them back uh, as as part of our supply network. But uh, you know, ultimately, we've we've invested quite a lot over the years in uh, building a supply chain uh, that meets these higher standards, uh-huh. and and it's become a pretty powerful. Uh, differentiator from uh, for Chipotle um, uh, within the the restaurant industry, and uh, and and uh, you know, that's really why we felt it wasn't uh, 
uh, a compromise we could make. I mean, it's it's certainly not our uh, intent to to punish uh, the supplier. Ultimately, we think these are good people who are trying to do uh, the right thing, and and uh, we hope that they'll. Uh, uh, get things, get the house back in order, and and that will uh, we may be able to work with them again. In the meantime, we're we're thrilled to have uh, folks like uh, Trip and the gang at Nyman uh, coming up with more supply for us. Yeah, our quest for better, more sustainable ingredients began some 15 years ago when we right. started serving pork from Nyman, and and they remain a a key supplier uh, for us to this day. And and I think uh, their their response to this issue. Uh, you know, really, I think, underscores the kind of partnership that we look to have uh, with all of our suppliers. And, and when there's a problem somewhere in our system, uh, you know, Nyman Ranch was the first ones to say, we're going to do everything we can do to help. Right, right. Um, well, gl- glad we could help you. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you, because I, I love both of your companies, and um, and I like both of you a lot. So, you know, it's, it's all about me. Um, let's talk for a second about... Is this a watershed moment for the pork industry? I mean, do they need to like, are they, because I mean, Jeff, you and I, Trip, you and I were talking about, um, you know, sort of the meetingplace.com blogosphere, you know, where everyone is like laughing their heads off and oh my God, these people are so ridiculous with their stupid standards. Um, but I'm starting to think that, you know, the, you know, between Chipotle uh, saying they weren't going to, they were going to buy Australian beef because we don't have enough grass fed, pissing off the American grass fed association, no end, but that's what it was. And, uh, and now with this pork thing, um, you know, are, do you feel like uh, industry leaders of uh, animal agriculture are starting Starting to sit up and take notice. If I were a shareholder in one of those companies, you better believe I would be taking notice. You know, I, I do, Katie, and, and here's why: they're obviously smart people. Uh, they're well intentioned in that they have uh, they have employees, they have families, and so on. And so everyone's trying to do the right thing. And and I think if they view what's happening at Chipotle, uh, companies like Nime and things like that, as this is uh, part of the American uh, consumer decision that's being made. Yeah. They're voting a certain way with dollars. Um, they're saying they want these things. And these are smart guys running large companies. And it's not like they're going to be breaking new ground. There are companies out there, and you think of the Dean Foods of the world that have purchased White Wave and Silk and Horizon Organic right. Milk and Danone purchased Stonyfield Coke purchase Odwalla, Pepsi purchase Naked Juice. So there's lots of examples of large established industries with dominant players saying, gosh, there's an opportunity here to listen to the consumer and to get into that business and do a great job. So I can't see why they wouldn't do that. I think the question is when, but gosh, why wouldn't they do that? The returns are great. The growth rates. I mean, look at Chipotle stock versus Absolutely. maybe some in the in the fast casual industry that aren't doing so well. So yeah. this is not something that you would just respond to in an emotional way. In a business way, this is a very good decision. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, you want to weigh in on that? What do you think? Um, well, well I, I hope it's a watershed. Um, uh, you know, the, there has been. I think the, the the dialogue around issues in food and how food is produced has has been becoming much more mainstream. I think the reaction that we've seen from customers really shows that there is 
uh, a lot of support for, for, for businesses that are trying to do the right thing where uh, food, are, food is concerned. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, it would be a whole lot easier uh, uh, from our position if you had more people doing what the, the folks at Nyman are doing. If you had other uh, large buyers like a Chipotle or Whole Foods uh, who are, are, are trying to provide you know more of this the food that we think is uh, raised right, and and I, you know I hope that the uh, uh, the response we've seen to this um, you know maybe maybe is a signal that uh, the demand is is great and the interest is there, and and that that may motivate others uh, to, to get in the game. I mean it's um, uh, you know it's it's proven a really good way for uh, farmers to, to operate. Uh, you know when we started working with Nyman, uh, they had. 50 or 60 farms in their program today. They have more than 700. I mean, that's yeah. tremendous growth tremendous. Uh, over the years. And it's a, uh, you know, as Tripp has pointed out, it's a really great opportunity for uh, for the farmers as well. And and uh, you know, I hope that uh, I hope that uh, uh, this is sort of a, a signal of, of changing tides. Yeah, well, I, I can I can give you an example. Just in the past week, yeah, I mean, Nyman had built its business on very small independent restaurants and and specialty grocery stores right and in the last week since and unfortunately the story's been out there for you um, we've received many calls from much larger organizations saying hey we uh, customers saying they would like to pursue a discussion and understand more so maybe wow. in that regard it is a watershed moment Wow, that's amazing. Listen, we should take a short break now for a sponsor drop, uh, but we'll be right back with Jeff Trapezian from Nyman Ranch, Chris Arnold from Chipotle for about two more minutes, and uh, listen more about what's going on in the pork industry. Big stuff. Today's break song is called Meeting at the Docks by Rectech. This is What Doesn't Kill You. program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. 
This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking about carnitas today, recently pulled from 600-plus Chipotle Mexican Grill outlets. Uh, On the phone with me are Chris Arnold, who is their Director of of Communications, and Jeff Trapezian, who is the Executive Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Nyman Ranch. So these two guys are the mother load of information, people. So listen up, because we're talking to the gurus here. So um, we only have five more minutes with Chris. You know, I wanted to like, you know, keep going with sort of a bit of an industry talk, you know, now that we've kind of dissected what goes on with you guys. Um, I, I wondered if you could both comment on um, things like uh, the animal agriculture trade organizations. This is like my new hobby horse, um, but I really think that they fail miserably in their jobs at um, directing their constituents into more progressive forms of agriculture. And I wondered if you could both um, talk about how you perceive uh, trade co- trade organizations like the NCBA, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, or the National Pork Producers Council. Um, what's, what's your take on those guys? And do you think that they're pushing the industry forward or holding it back? Yeah, tri- Trips probably got a, a much closer uh, vantage point on this th- than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I will say that that you know, when when um, you know our efforts have have rankled some in the industry, uh, the, the associations have always pointed out to us that that they do represent uh, our producers as well, but but you know they, that they have an obligation to represent the the supply community as a whole. So if you're NCBA to, to follow your example, you're you're representing all facets of of the beef industry, and and folks that are meeting our protocols are a fairly small portion of that. It certainly seems like there is an opportunity to advocate more for you know those those you know niche. Assets of of the, the supply chain. Uh, although I would also add that that a few years ago now I spoke uh, at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association conference on a panel with our good friend Mel Coleman, uh, right. one of our longtime uh, beef suppliers, and and it was a big uh, meeting room uh, capacity of 400 or so, and it was standing room only. So among the NCBA membership, there was a whole lot of interest in uh, in our protocols and and. And what we had to say, and and what uh, those opportunities offer to to farmers and ranchers. But uh, again, your trip's probably much closer to the the industry as a whole than we are. Trip, what do you think? Well, you know, and we we Nyman, others that say supply Chipotle or Whole Foods or so on, represent typically about one percent of whatever the industry is, whether it's uh-huh. it's pork or beef or so on. So. If you're the trade association, um, this side of the conversation is is one percent, and and ninety nine percent of their members um, uh, represent another choice. So, I think that that a lot of those groups um, uh, put uh, effort together to meet the needs of the majority of their their members. Um, and I, you know, I worked in a, a long time ago in a trade association, and you know, the bigger members um, have the loudest voice. Yeah, and and true. so I, I wish they would uh, spend more time saying that what we do is a choice that could fit into other people's business, uh-huh. and not an assault on their business or a requirement for someone to totally redo their business. Right. But 
but they tend to not get communicated that way. No, they don't. I mean, uh, the polarity, it's the polarization that is so striking to me. Right. Um, and, and I think so sad because I think that a lot of uh, farmers, especially in the small and medium-sized categories, could really use more support, like the kind of support that Nyman Ranch offers their farms um, or that Chipotle offers their suppliers, um, in the sense of like guaranteeing a contract or guaranteeing a certain, you know, purchase or something like that. And I'm not sure that that happens so much with conventional farming. And I think that that is one of the reasons why farming is uh, so often a precarious business, um, because, you know, there are no guarantees in farming. You can't, you know, right. you can't dictate uh, the weather. You can't dictate disease. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's up to your trading partners uh, to make it work for you. And it seems to me that the trading partners, uh, such as the larger industry um, entities like Tyson or Cargill or Smithfield or what have you, um, fail to make the kinds of contracts with their with their farmers that uh, are most beneficial to them. And you know, it's 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 really more of a one side one sided. Um, um, experience where they they derive the benefit, the primary benefit, and the contract workers essentially are just contract workers. But anyway, that's just my, you know, my uh, ignorant uh, sense of this business. Um, what about lobbying, you guys? Do you guys ever get to lobby? Do you speak in front of Congress? Oh, Chris, you got to go off, don't you? Um, I, I can take that, and then I probably have to, to jump. Um, okay. We, we do a little bit of lobbying. In fact, we've we've done some with uh, uh, some of our partners, including Nyman and and Applegate. Uh-huh. Um, you know, mostly as it relates to uh, the the use of antibiotics in in livestock farming. We've been right. uh, supporting a bill that's been bouncing around Washington for a few years now, <laughs> uh, called the Preservation of Antibiotics yeah. for Medical Treatment. Act. Oh, I think it's like twelve. Uh, 14 years, actually, not to interrupt, but... And this is a bill that would effectively end the, the subtherapeutic use of antibiotics in livestock farming. Um, lobbying is not a big part of, of what we do. We, we have always believed that uh, it's the private sector that's going to drive change in this area, mm-hmm. not, uh, not public policy, not the regulatory environment. Um, mm-hmm. And it's going to be the success of companies like Chipotle and Nyman and Whole Foods and Applegate uh, that, that, that really become a model that others are going to follow. I mean, it's sort of basic uh, economics when there's an economic opportunity in, in these areas and people are successful uh, pursuing that, others are going to follow. And, and we've always uh, you know, believed that's really going to, to, to drive the change and, and have uh, really just decided to lend our voice to some of these issues uh, because they're so important to us. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me on the program today uh, and giving us the Chipotle side of the story. Uh, I'm sure we'll be watching this play out uh, as, you know, as things play out. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how soon those carnitas come back on the menu. Uh, yeah, we're, we're eager to see that ourselves. Thanks I for bet you me. are. You betcha. Um, so, Trip, uh, let's talk a little bit further about um, sort of, uh, you know, Chris uh, referenced uh, the idea that the, the consumer is going to drive change in our animal agriculture industry um, <laughs> and not the regulatory uh, powers, not the USDA, not FSIS with the Food Safety and Inspection Act um, and, or Food Safety and Inspection Services. Um, you know, and, I, and, and they have signally failed to protect the population from a variety of things, in my opinion. That's just mine. Um, uh, And so I I think it's interesting that we can't 
look to our regulatory agencies, for example, uh, to demand certain standards of the uh, livestock industry. Um, and it is also the case that lobbyists are, I think, very loud. Um, so how, how do we address that besides the consumer demand? Um, how can we push some of those issues that uh, Chris just mentioned, the antibiotics, ractopamine use of beta agonists, uh, housing, and, and so on? Um, how can we push that needle forward in Congress um, so that we can make this all change a little bit faster? Boy, I, that that's that's a great question. I don't have. Uh, if I had that insight, <laughs> I wouldn't. Uh, I'd be in Washington. Um, yeah, right. But I, I got to tell you that some of the things that that they've done um, and tried to do, um, I, I think, are right-headed. I mean, I think they've done a, a decent job of of uh, putting in those safety nets so that things get caught and before they become bigger. So on one hand, I, I do uh, think they've done a, a very good job. I know we've worked with some that are, that, you know, are, are nodding their head yes, saying how can we do that in a very large, uh, more bureaucratic sense. And, 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 you know, we're all critical of that in, in private industry because you want to go fast yeah. and, and you want to make change right. uh, that you can see in our lifetime and, and so on. And, and, but I will give you a, a positive example. I mean, not two weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C. with Undersecretary of Agriculture and, uh-huh. and talking about how come, how, what, are, what are we doing, both private industry as well as, as um, uh, at the federal level and, and state level, uh-huh. to try to get younger farmers or new farmers out on the land. Right. To have them pick that as a career choice because really that's where uh, we can make changes along the way, and they're all important. But... If you want to talk about a, a wave of change, it's it's uh, not necessarily talking to a farmer late in his his career, but but one that's that's starting out. And so we talked about how do we get returning veterans uh-huh. to pick family farming or farming? How do you get recent college graduates? How do you get women, minorities, all those groups that seem to be stuck at that starting gate? Right. And what are we doing? What can we do in collaboration? And and that was not only a very fruitful meeting in that we had willing partners at the table between Chamber of Commerce and uh, Small Business Administration and, and Department of Agriculture, but the Undersecretary ended the meeting by saying, look, I want to be uh, holding a series of meetings out in these ag communities, showing them the programs and helping them navigate what is clearly a challenging system to figure out mm-hmm. so that they can start and be successful. So I walked out of there with a, uh, a very an optimism that I haven't seen uh, in Washington in a long time. Wow. And, and I do make several chip, trips. Yeah. So uh, whether that's a change there or not, but um, it, was, uh, it was very, very positive. Well, it's that's it's, that's a very exciting, uh, you know, development. I mean, I don't think I've heard, well, you know, seven years of listening to people talk about agriculture. I haven't heard anybody say that before. <laughs> and, and you would have never heard that from me had I not been there two weeks ago. So yeah, yeah, we'll right. see if they follow through. And if we're yeah. able to put that coalition together and actually do these things. Yeah. Um, so to, to follow up on that particular question, what do you think about the agricultural education system or programs in land-grant universities and colleges um, who are actually doing the business of educating the next generation of farmers and who seem, uh, I could be totally wrong, but my sense uh, when I talk to younger farmers um, is that they are steeped in sort of the uh, culture of the last 30, 40 years 
workers vis-a-vis um, -vis using, um, you know, antibiotics or pesticides or herbicides or something like that. It's like, you know, a lot of those universities are often funded by large agricultural entities right. who profit. And right. so, um, so the party line is the party line, and these kids are getting the party line. They're not being exposed sure. to a lot of, um, or at least that's my sense. So correct me if I'm wrong or sure. tell me what you think. Well, I, I can give you a couple of examples. I mean, we work very close with um, with Colorado State and their mm -hmm. School of Agriculture. Same with Iowa and so on. And so, I think you're right in that that the dominant voice on those campuses uh, are the the big part of agriculture today, um, yeah. because that's what what the trend is, as well as that's where a lot of the research money is and so on. So, yeah. so that is the dominant voice, but. Um, on most of those campuses, they hear that there are alternatives or choices. Where I think they do, uh, they could do a much better job, is connecting the economic dot. They, they talk about activity, and I don't think they do as good a job of saying what the activity, activity produces. Uh huh. And so... So a, a kid graduating from uh, from a uh, whether undergrad or graduate degree in agriculture would understand the mechanics of how to do A or B or different different methods, but they wouldn't understand what the benefit is to them uh -huh. financially. Uh -huh. And when we've given some talks on campuses, it, it, it's like turning a light bulb on for these kids. They're right. going, so you're telling me I can make more money as a farmer if I choose an, a different alternative? Yeah. And obviously we say yes, and, and that's, you know, if you're a young kid getting out of school, that's pretty darn important. Yeah, absolutely. And so I don't, I don't think they tell them about the financials or, or, or they don't know the financials. Hmm, that's an interesting thought. It'd be kind of scary to think they don't, but, you know, it's possible. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> it's not clear to me what happens in ag extension schools beyond things like, you know, soil science, soil chemistry, you mm -hmm. know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there is – I should actually do some research on that. I, I don't think that there is as much uh, exploration of alternative methods. I mean, uh, you know, I think there are co colleges or, or universities that run organic programs and stuff like that, but it's not clear to me that there is a whole lot of research on that side. Um, I don't think there's very much research at all. Yeah, yeah. Although I just read a fascinating article, um, which I will send you if you want, about um, essential oils being used in to replace uh, various sort of probiotics or antibiotics or, or various things that are, you know, to deal with chronic illnesses in uh, livestock farming. I thought that was just fascinating. We'll see what happens with that. Anyway, I guess we should wrap it up. I guess I'm, I'm I mean, I could keep going, but I, I, I bet you have something to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate the time and anything we can do oh to, to my help God. you just let us know. You are the best, Trip. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You're such a level-headed, you know, straight-thinking guy. I really appreciate the time on the phone today and, and with Chris as well. Um, I feel like you're a terrific resource for us as just basic knowledge about the big bad world out there. So um, thanks again. Well, these and are important issues. Thanks they a lot. are. And so people look at NymanRanch.com if you want to learn more about what they're doing and their family of farms, over 700 now. And um, of course, Chipotle.com to talk more about uh, carnitas and when they'll be back on the menu. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Take care now. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 